0: From deep inside your audio device of choice. Hey, ladies and gentlemen. I don't mean to, uh, scare you or anything, but it's almost the end of time to check your Medicare plan for next year. The enrollment period ends December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day. You don't want to do it then. Too depressing. So why don't you, um, get into a country where the health care plan doesn't require you to sit through those advertisements two months every every year, won't you? This is Le Show, as you well know by now, and um, this is a very special one. It is, and I'm going to tell you this because you won't hear about it, on NPR. This is the 40th anniversary of this program. That's right. Not, not a thing to be considered. We've been told that. So, happy anniversary to you as a listener. And a happy 40th anniversary to me as the guy who can't stop doing this. It's a very special show for another reason today. This is the week that we lost. I don't mean he rolled under the couch. I mean, he uh, perished. We lost Henry Kissinger. Um, there has been a lot of what I would describe as dutifully, dutiful praise for his life and his work. We're going to go another way with ken hughes who is at the university of virginia's miller center he studies the uh, recently released white house tapes of richard nixon lyndon johnson and john f kennedy he's also a freelance journalist and uh, has been in journalism in uh, many different capacities before he joined the university. Educated at Cornell. Who knew? Uh, Ken is the author of a quite amazing book called Fatal Politics. Uh, came out, I think, well, I'll say right here. I don't have to remember. Yes, 2015. And at that point, they were still releasing new tapes from uh, the Richard Nixon White House. Took them a long time because they had to go through every single tape to excise any personal material. And that meant listening to every single moment of every single tape. But this most recent release contained tapes referring to how Richard Nixon and the recently deceased Henry Kissinger dealt with the Vietnam War in relationship to the 1972 upcoming, then-upcoming, re-election campaign. So, Ken, this is a, uh, an appropriate, <laughs> probably the most appropriate time to have this conversation. Um, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. First, let's just set the scene um, what was, how would you describe this relationship?
1: Wow. Um, I think, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, that uh, I'm trying not to, to, to be rude. I'm gonna to have to speak ill of the dead, but I don't have to speak rudely of the dead. Um, Henry Kissinger was Richard Nixon's uh, henchman, his uh, intellectual and diplomatic enabler. The man who helped him craft his worst schemes, the ones that uh, most grievously betrayed the trust that the American people put in them both, and uh, and and carried them out. Uh, he was, um, you know, a great American success story, but kind of like a great American gangster story since uh, his success did come at the expense of America, uh, particularly at the expense of the lives of the thousands of Americans who died so that Nixon and Kissinger could delay defeat in Vietnam until after the 1972 election, when uh, Nixon was determined to be reelected and uh, (laughs) Kissinger was determined... To uh, have his fraudulent legacy secured as a peacemaker, and so um, I think you know it's a it is a very important milestone in American history that Henry Kissinger has passed. But I don't think we yet, as Americans, have fully processed processed the trauma that uh, he uh, with Richard Nixon uh, inflicted on us all.
0: Well that's a sort of a grim outlook on uh, on a man's uh, legacy um, having, well, you read
1: my book so you, you were warned yes
0: i'm not I'm not shocked um, I would add having listened to a lot of uh, the tapes uh, as a part of the uh, research for the television series I did um, one of the chief characteristics to my ears of that relationship was Kissinger's constant attempts to um, kiss the president's rear end. Um, that was the best speech you ever gave. That was the best press conference you ever gave. Um, constantly um, praising Nixon. And uh, I don't know if he was trying to... Uh, but what what do you think is the reason for that? Uh, I-
1: I agree. Um, And it was an essential part of Kissinger's success in his career. He had to put Richard Nixon's political success above all other values, above the lives of American soldiers, above the lives of the people of Indochina, the North and the South Vietnamese, as well as the Laotians and Cambodians, who died because Nixon and Kissinger uh, extended and expanded the war, uh, and above peace itself, Um, and of course, uh, above the truth. Um, So the the obsequiousness we hear in Henry Kissinger's one-on-one conversations with Richard Nixon, it's not just embarrassing, it reveals the, the damning truth of their relationship which was that um, Kissinger prostrated himself completely uh, before Nixon's career in order to advance his own
0: career. Probably the most uh, shocking example of that that I've ever heard was on one of the tapes, um, Nixon is uh, irritated, perhaps angry, And he's got Kissinger in the room with him. And he says, no more Jewish Ivy League people. No more of that. To Kissinger's face. And Kissinger doesn't make a sound. But sir, I'm one of those. (laughs) He doesn't doesn't bother to point that out.
1: That was one of the things uh, that Henry Kissinger put up with. Nixon's anti-Semitism, uh, while that was a particularly egregious example, um, I I think most of the time Nixon, Nixon hated three groups of people, uh, Jews, intellectuals, and Ivy Leaguers. <laughs> he thought they were all arrogant and they all put themselves above the law. And of course, Nixon, when he's accusing Jews, intellectuals and Ivy leaguers of arrogantly placing themselves above the law, he's just engaged in projection. Mm -hmm. He is the man who is putting himself arrogantly above the law in all sorts of ways, some of which came out in Watergate and some of which didn't come out until we got to listen to his tapes, as you did, um, after, after Nixon died. But um, Nixon made an exception for Jews, intellectuals, and Ivy Leaguers, even Harvard's, uh, as he called uh, people like Henry Kissinger, who had his uh, degrees and uh, and a professorship at Harvard, um, as long as they dedicated their lives to advancing Nixon's political interests. And uh, Henry Kissinger devoted the, uh, the best years of his life to doing that. Um and that was uh that was the the price that he paid to achieve uh fame and recognition. That was built ultimately on deception.
0: Gee, a president who engages in projection. I don't think we've seen that lately. <laughs> Maybe that's the secret ingredient to running for president. You have to be good at projection. Okay, well, there are conversations that You've heard, I think I've heard, um, where it gets pretty explicit as to what Nixon uh, wanted to accomplish with regard to the Vietnam War. Uh, Let's talk about that a little bit.
1: Great. Um, I guess the the part that people find most shocking, and that is uh, uh, the worst, is that Nixon and Kissinger realized very early on that they could not succeed in Vietnam. They could not win the war as they defined winning the war, which was training the South Vietnamese army and giving it enough equipment so that it could defend itself against the North Vietnamese. Um, In other words, it was preserving an independent, anti-communist South Vietnamese government. Mm -hmm. Uh, er Early on, um, Kissinger and Nixon did something very logical. They asked, uh, the military and uh, the state department and intelligence agencies, um, how long it would take to, uh, train and equip South Vietnam, uh, so that it was strong enough to defend itself. And the answer came back unanimously from the Pentagon, the state department, the CIA, from everyone, and including uh, the military in South Vietnam, Critton Abrams, uh, the military U.S. military commander in Vietnam. And they all said that South Vietnam would not be able to survive without American combat troops uh, for the foreseeable future. In other words, the real choice that America faced when Nixon and Kissinger came to power in 1969 was either to leave and lose, or stay and fight forever? Yeah, and that that was it. I mean, it was a it was a very uh, it was a very clear trade off. Now there was no way that Nixon could win re-election by being honest with uh, the American people about the real choice that he faced. He had promised something he could not deliver peace with honor um if he withdrew the troops saying we can't win um that would not meet the definition of peace because the war would go on until the north vietnamese took over and it would not meet i think anyone's definition of honor at that point you and i looking back could wish he had done it it would have been the moral thing for him to do but um I have to, you know, to be honest, the Democrats would have attacked him from the right. They would have accused him of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, of uh, forfeiting the sacrifice of the 30,000 American soldiers who had already died in Vietnam before the Republicans uh, came to power in, in 69. And, you know, Nixon would have gone down in history in ignominy. As someone who uh, chose to surrender rather than to fight, so I don't want to. I don't want to minimize the uh, the cost that you know Nixon would have paid. Ultimately, though, it would have been much better for America and for the world and for everybody who died over the next four years um, if he had done that. And you know, another another. Um, Honorable choice from the Cold War perspective would have been to continue fighting. If he could have said, you know, look, we we just can't leave. And, uh, you know, I I refuse to surrender in Vietnam. And if you want to uh, end the war, you'll just have to get rid of me. But he knew that, you know, the the American people were not going to put up with an endless war in Vietnam. It was uh, costing hundreds of American lives every week at that point. And um, the American people are just not going to stand for an endless war, at least if they know that that is the choice they faced. So Kissinger and uh, Nixon came up with a a satisfying lie, uh, Vietnamization. They said they would only stay in Vietnam long enough to train and equip the South Vietnamese to take over the fighting and defend themselves. So it was... The false claim was that it would not be a forever war uh, with Americans fighting and dying indefinitely, that it was only a a temporary thing until the South Vietnamese could take over and uh, we would achieve peace with honor that way militarily. Or um, they said we might be able to negotiate uh, a settlement in which the North Vietnamese would, for some reason, agree to let South Vietnam choose its government through free and fair elections, even though the North Vietnamese had never agreed to that before, and were demanding that, um, at the very least, the uh, South Vietnamese agree to a coalition government, um, giving the communists some share of power in the South. Um, both these these approaches, Vietnamization and negotiation, were fraudulent, and I've been uh, been talking at length, so I want to know if you wanted to interrupt me and ask me any sort of questions about any of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's my recollection that they had, <clears throat> um, as part of um, whatever strategy they were uh, bent upon, um, they had conversations where they explicitly discussed the political need to prolong the war until the 72 election talked about that a little bit
1: yes um the big risk to nixon politically was not continuing the war it was ending it and losing it so there were times when nixon considered getting out of vietnam say at the end of 1971 which would be the end of his third year Mm -hmm. in office. Mm -hmm. Uh, He realized that he had done all he could with regard to training and equipping the South Vietnamese Army. Um, He realized that he had to withdraw eventually. And uh, he actually privately discussed getting out by Christmas of 1971 Um, But Henry Kissinger warns him of the political consequences. If Nixon got out by the end of 71, then the North Vietnamese might take over South Vietnam in 1972. And if they took over South Vietnam before Election Day, Nixon would lose re-election because he had failed to produce peace with honor. Instead, he had just... He would have just have produced slow retreat and delayed defeat. Um, didn't mean to rhyme there. Sorry. <laughs> it was <laughs> but, good. Um,
0: let, let me just interpose here. That's a sure. that's a bit out of um, out of line with his job, isn't it? For Kissinger to have been political consultant.
1: Yes, Kissinger uh, to burnish his image in public. Insisted that he did not uh, advise President Nixon on politics at all. Uh, Kissinger wanted to present himself as a statesman. And also, you know, he helped Nixon burnish his credentials as a statesman by pretending that the two of them were above political considerations (laughs) and arguing that, you know, if they were mere politicians, they would have done the popular thing and ended the war. Neglecting to mention that that would result in the unpopular thing of losing the war and uh, American voters would would kick them both out in November of 1972 Mm -hmm. if they realized that these guys had merely prolonged the war and lost it at the cost of thousands of more lives. So while, while Kissinger pretended to be only interested in america's national interest as you and i have heard on the tapes he was always bringing up nixon's political interest um, when it came time to make important decisions like when do they get out of vietnam and they because Kiss- kissinger would remind nixon whenever nixon said things like well, I'll I'll make a deal anytime they want. Anytime they agree to release American prisoners of war, I'll agree to bring the troops home. Um, Nixon says that on tape uh, early in 1971, and, and Kissinger says, "No, no, we have to make sure that the South Vietnamese government does not collapse before election day, 1972." And Nixon says, "Yes, you're, you know you're right. We'll we'll." we'll stick with the uh, current strategy, which is eventually to keep the war going until either shortly before or shortly after Election Day 1972. Um, If they time it close enough to the election, they can be sure that the South Vietnamese government won't collapse before Election Day. Mm -hmm. So Nixon can take credit with the voters for being strong. Um, And at the same time, throughout those four years, he's announcing partial troop withdrawals every few months Mm -hmm. so that he can claim credit for making peace gradually. And Americans can see that the number of American soldiers in Vietnam is going down drastically. There were over half a million American soldiers in there when Nixon took office. And there are less than 50,000 American soldiers in Vietnam by Election Day 1972. So from the outside, it looks like Nixon is moving toward peace. It looks like um, he has uh, done his best to make South Vietnam capable of defending itself. And he has done that without simply cutting and running. But behind the scenes, it's very different he and uh, Kissinger are negotiating a a decent interval deal with the communists.
0: And the decent interval is the period between the United States getting out and the North taking over the South.
1: Yes, sir. Um, Nixon figures that if he gets American troops out around Election Day 72— he can even now he, he's, he's a very clever and competent strategist. He as early as like the, the, the winter of 1971, he's got this this window in which he wants to withdraw. He's got, you know he says I can, I can bring the troops home as early as July 72 or as late as January 73. And uh, that will give me enough time to make sure that South Vietnam doesn't collapse. And it will also allow him to take credit for ending the war at election time. Um, So, you know, it's it's a very clever strategy. But at the same time, he realizes that if he brings the troops home in January 73 and South Vietnam collapses a few months later, then Americans are going to realize that he just delayed defeat. And uh, he wound up losing the war at this great cost of American lives. And as Kissinger says to him on tape, they'll say you should have done it four years sooner, which, you know, you and I, I think, would agree. Mm -hmm. They should have done that. You know, morally, that would have been the right thing to do. Politically, though, it would have been disastrous for both uh, Nixon and Kissinger. So what Nixon and Kissinger are doing behind the scenes during... um, their great uh, public pageant of triangular diplomacy when they're engaging in rapprochement with uh, the Chinese after 20 years of diplomatic isolation of communist China. And they're engaged in detente with uh, the Soviet Union after um, you know uh, decades of uh, arms race competition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, while they're publicly moving toward uh, a a more stable, a more diplomacy-based international order. Behind the scenes, Kissinger is assuring Moscow and Beijing that if North Vietnam just waits a year or two after Nixon gets out, after he withdraws the last American troops around election time 72, If if the North will just wait a year or two before taking over South Vietnam militarily, then Nixon and Kissinger will not intervene militarily. They'll have a clear, clean shot at taking over the South without having to worry about the American military, which which has always been the North's biggest worry. They're not worried about whether they'll be able to defeat the South Vietnamese army and government. They know they can do that as long as the South Vietnamese army and government do not have backup from the American military on the ground in Vietnam and uh, and in the, the skies and offshore uh, with the uh, bombardment that uh, the North and the South, uh, the communist troops in the South, were receiving from the American Navy. So this secret assurance is strategically very, very important to the communists, because it means they don't have to give up their goal of military conquest, of taking over South Vietnam. They just have to delay it for a year or two. And this um, gives Kissinger his most famous moment uh, uh, on television. Uh, the pieces at hand press conference, mm-hmm. which takes place as you recall, less than two weeks before the election. And it's uh, it's just this uh, politically it's this beautiful moment. It's so dramatic. Um, it's the uh, it's the moment everybody said that it could not be done that Nixon and Kissinger could not get the North Vietnamese to agree to their peace terms and their peace terms are free elections in the South and security guarantees like, uh, the end of the, the closing of the Ho Chi Minh trail, which mm-hmm. was the, uh, supply route that the North used through Laos and Cambodia, the 2 Indochinese countries on the, uh, Western border of Vietnam. And, um, When Kissinger announces those terms, it looks like he and Nixon have pulled off a miracle. But it's a fraud. The only reason that the North Vietnamese have agreed to those terms in public is that Nixon and Kissinger have privately assured them and Moscow and Beijing that they don't have to abide by those terms, that they can take over the South militarily as long as they wait a year or two to do so, so in a way, this this crowning moment of Kissinger's fame and reputation is uh, is merely an illusion. It's uh, it's a, a lie, a feel good lie that um, made people who supported Nixon um, think that their support had paid off in some really tangible way that it had produced peace with honor, when in fact it was just delayed defeat uh, and slow retreat. I'm running again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Ken the rapper. Um,
1: it's, it's a terrible, terrible habit of mine.
0: Well, irony is too uh, weak a word to describe all of this. Um, there are stronger words, which if we were farther away from uh, Kissinger's uh, Recent uh, passing might uh, be more appropriate, but um, I think that's, that's enough to know. Um, he famously or infamously uh, was skilled, a mild term for it, for the way he dealt with the press. He uh, comforted them. He praised them. He fla- flattered them. He did everything possible to get the best possible treatment from the press, and he certainly did.
1: He, uh, he did play the press masterfully, and he could do that because of how much power Nixon put in his hands. Um, he was, you know, the chief diplomat of the United States. If you wanted to know what was going on in American diplomacy with regard to Vietnam, with regard to China, with regard to the soviet union you had to talk to nixon or kissinger because you know the state department was just cut out of it so in a way he he had this great power over the supply of information and he could play reporters off one another he could uh, he could find the reporters who would give him the portrayal that he sought and uh, ice out the ones who would be more critical of him. I remember there's a a famous story where um, I think Woodward or Bernstein during Watergate interviewed Kissinger and were surprised when he asked them to put something off the record because, you know, you can't do that with a reporter. You can't say something and then say it's off the mm-hmm. record. You have to get a prior agreement. Mm-hmm. And then they 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 spoke with the diplomatic correspondents and they were told, well, actually, you know, we let Henry Kissinger do that <laughs> because it was just, it was necessary in order for them to maintain their relationship with him. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was a it was a very... It was a very debilitating position for the diplomatic press corps to be in. But um, because of the way Nixon and Kissinger ran things, uh, they didn't see any other choice. And afterwards, you know, historians were um, in a bad position for decades after Nixon and Kissinger left office because the records of what they do- what they had done, um, not only Nixon's tapes, but the verbatim transcripts of their negotiations with communist leaders, remained classified. They were top secret, so Nixon and Kissinger could use them to write their memoirs mm. and present themselves in the best possible light, and uh, you know make bestsellers out of their spin out of their uh manipulation of the evidence and uh, historians could only play catch-up decades after the fact when people were paying far less attention to uh you know historical events like mm-hmm. the vietnam war and the opening to china and uh detente with the soviet union
0: mm. um ken hughes of the uh, miller center at the university of virginia I do recommend that people get uh your book Fatal Politics and uh delve into this uh in even more detail because it's fascinating and um you know I I have said more than once to friends Nixon um in in many ways resembles Trump except uh, Nixon still had this quaint sense that you did all that stuff in private. You didn't do it in public. <laughs> no.
1: That is that is absolutely true and, and very astute. And, and Harry, it's a great privilege and honor uh, to be on your program. Thank um, you. And I recommend that uh, the two or three of your listeners who have not already seen the, the great television series that you made out of the Nixon tapes, uh, must do so. <laughs> uh, it does a, a much, I, I hate to say it, but it's a much better job than my prose. Oh, please. Than my book of uh, of bringing the the history to life. And uh, I, I strongly recommend it to everyone. And I, I'm not the only historian who does. Oh, we are really? fans of your work.
0: Thank you. It's on YouTube if you're looking for it. And uh, let me just uh, conclude with My favorite um, Kissingerism, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac.
1: (laughs) I'm not feeling it, sir.
0: (laughs) Ken Hughes, thanks again.
1: Thank you, Harry. It's been great.
0: Just one end note to all that. Of course, the end object of all the planning and manipulating was for Nixon to be in office for another four years as uh, time and history would have it. He only got a year and a half of his second term accomplished before he had to resign the office. So his um, great plans were annulled by his own dirty deeds.
2: I was a big man yesterday, but all oh, you ought to see me.
0: of the show and now ladies and gentlemen the apologies of the week
2: we're so sorry
0: Dayline, Canberra, Australia survivors of the harmful morning sickness drug thalidomide were in the public gallery this week when Australia's parliament made a national apology to them on the 62nd anniversary of the drug being withdrawn from sale in the country thalidomide was available in 46 countries and caused birth defects, stillbirths, and miscarriages. Survivors with limb deformities and one with no limbs were in the gallery to hear Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's apology. Quote, today, on behalf of the people of Australia, our government and this parliament offers a full, unreserved, and overdue apology to all the limited survivors, their families, loved ones, and carers. This apology takes in one of the darkest chapters in Australia's medical history, he added. Doctors had assured pregnant women that the drug was safe. Australia established a support program in 2020 that's providing lifelong assistance to 148 survivors. And the prime minister said his government was reopening the program to survivors who had yet to register. From the Philadelphia DA's office, quote, In 1998, Eddie Ramirez was convicted of second-degree murder. No physical evidence was tied to any suspect. The Commonwealth's case at trial relied on cooperating defendant, William Way, and three other teenagers who alleged they overheard Ramirez speak about the murder. Ramirez argued he was not present and was not involved in the murder. For more than 25 years, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania withheld substantial evidence that supported Ramirez's trial defense. Prior DA administrations presented argument to the trial court as well as various post-conviction courts that was either directly refuted or called into question by withheld evidence. The failure by prior DAs to disclose this evidence to Ramirez, which he'd always been entitled to under the U.S. Constitution, was unacceptable and outrageous. I believe the Philadelphia DA's office should be accountable for its errors and misconduct, including that of long-gone prosecutors and prior elected DAs. On behalf of the DA's office, I apologize to the court, to this victim's family, and to Mr. Ramirez and his family for the effect that past violations of his rights had on this case and on everyone involved. It's against this backdrop we move today to withdraw all criminal charges against Mr. Ramirez. We are pleased that the court agreed. Unquote. Google has issued an apology after sending some drivers using Google Maps to travel between Los Angeles and Las Vegas on dangerous desert road detours, at least one of which turned out to be a road to nowhere that left people stranded. The I-15 corridor between Southern California and Vegas is a popular one, especially during the Thanksgiving holidays. One couple was coming back from Vegas until um, they used a Google Maps detour on their way back to L.A. to avoid a dust storm that shut down portions of the 15 freeway interstate on November 19th. Skipping a high wind event in the Mojave Desert seemed like a good idea. So, the couple, woman and her brother, opted for the alternate route, which took them on a path in the remote Nevada desert. They eventually ended up on an unpaved dirt path, and they weren't alone. Hundreds of other people appeared to have taken the same route. The same day, a different couple were traveling to Las Vegas, They um, used Google Maps, told us to get off at SEMA Road and take some other backcountry road, they said. They were directed into a different line of cars off the 15 freeway before realizing that the familiar path was the better choice. The dangerous detours caused deadlock on some roads and stranded several drivers stuck on the desert road for up to five hours before eventually getting towed because of the damage caused by the rough terrain. Officials of the Highway Patrol said these kinds of detours are actually pretty common in that area, with GPS apps sending people onto remote desert roads. The uh, Highway Patrol advises sticking to primary familiar routes. A spokesperson at Google said... Quote, we apologize for the incident that happened last weekend and confirm that we'll no longer route drivers traveling between Las Vegas and Barstow down through those roads. Today, drivers making that trip are being routed through I-15, which has been reopened. That's convenient. Dayline, Sebring, Ohio, local school district officials are apologizing after... Moldy pastries were served for breakfast, and at least seven students became ill after they ate them. In an email, Superintendent Tony Visconti—no, not that one—said the pastries were small, prepackaged blueberry muffin tops, and the manufacturer has been notified. President Joe Biden privately apologized to a group of prominent Muslim Americans after he dismissed the death toll provided provided by Gaza's Ministry of Health, according to a new report. During a press conference in the White House late October, Biden had voiced skepticism regarding the number of dead provided by the Gaza Health Office, adding, I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. Unquote. that health office is like the rest of the Gaza government, run by Hamas. The comments sparked fury from prominent Muslim Americans who met with the president the following day, criticizing him for being insensitive. During a meeting with some American Muslims, reported by the Washington Post, scheduled for 30 minutes, lasted more than an hour. Biden reportedly Apologized for his comments. Quote, I'm sorry, I'm disappointed in myself, he said to the group before he ended up hugging one of the participants. Quote, I will do better, Unquote. Joe Biden. And Palestinian American supermodel Gigi Hadid has apologized for writing on Instagram that Israel is the only country that keeps children as prisoners of war and that Israel had abducted, raped, and tortured Palestinians for years before October 7th. Quote, I shared something I did not fact-check or deeply think about prior to reposting, she wrote in a new post to her 79 million Instagram followers. I was trying to highlight how Palestinian children who were arrested by the IDF Israeli Defense Forces are often not given the same rights an Israeli, as an Israeli child accused of the same crime would. Unfortunately, I used the wrong example to make that point, and I regret that. Unquote. The Supermodel. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And finally, looks
3: like
0: Well, well known. National advertisers like Apple, Disney, IBM, and Sony have canceled their advertising or at least suspended their advertising on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, owned by Elon Musk. Numerous right-wing media companies and influencers have come together and pledged support for Musk, promising to advertise on X in order to make up for the revenue lost. Seth Dillon, CEO of conservative satire website Babylon Bee, announced his company would be spending $250,000 to advertise on X to support free speech. Others followed. Political commentator Benny Johnson, heard of him, pledged $50,000 in ad spending. Several others pledged between $2,500 and $40,000. The controversial Andrew Tate an influencer who's previously been charged with rape and human trafficking pledged the largest amount, saying he'd give Musk $1 million for, per, per month without even running ads for his own endeavors. I will literally promote your own platform on this platform. wrote Tate. $1 million a month. You don't need other advertisers. Simply let me know where to pay. It's unclear, according to Mashable... If Tate is serious or even has the resources to basically donate $12 million per year to X, when he was re- arrested earlier this year, Romanian authorities unveiled he had roughly more than $10 million in assets. This means that Tate is pledging more than he even has to Musk. Doubtful that, uh, so far these donations promised will, uh, in any way make up the amount X has lost from fleeing advertisers, Apple alone reportedly spends more than $100 million a year advertising on X and almost nothing on Y. Australia's Digital Industry Group, the industry association for organizations that invest in online safety, privacy, and cybersecurity, has withdrawn X's place in the voluntary code that oversees efforts to stop the spread of misinformation. X earned the dubious distinction of having its status to the Australian Code of Practice on Disinformation and Misinformation withdrawn after a complaint about its handling, or lack thereof, of reports of misinformation it carried during the lead-up on a referendum that offered Australians the chance to amend their constitution. That debate played out on X, often with the nuance-free tone from which the platform has become infamous. One of the uh, desired outcomes for that group is for social media platforms to ensure users can easily report offending content. However, a complaint from Reset Tech Australia, a research org that specializes in digital risks and online harms, alleged that X failed to do so. The uh, inability to report such material is, according to Reset Tech, extremely concerning given the referendum was near. The uh, governance complaint subcommittee investigated the complaint, arranged a meeting with an X executive to discuss it, but less than two hours before a Zoom meeting scheduled to consider the complaint, X's representative withdrew quote, citing ill health, unquote. X did not provide any written submission ahead of the meeting, nor did it engage with the subcommittee or the complainant. Musk's social network was therefore found to have, quote, committed a serious breach of the code and refused to cooperate or undertake any remedial action, unquote. Banishment from the code won't hurt X materially, but it's another example of uh, Musk's difficulties balancing the platform's aspiration to facilitate free speech and government's desire to have private players stop the flow of misinformation and material that inspires hatred. Exits previously pulled out of Europe's voluntary code for social media players, but since promised it will adhere to the bloc's Digital Services Act, which requires transparency of moderation practices and accountability. It's nice that they've promised to uh, adhere to the law, even if it's just in Europe. Meanwhile, back in Australia, access troubles aren't restricted to uh, its forced exit from the code. The service was fined 385 American, for failing to comply with a requirement to report its capabilities to detect, remove, and prevent child sexual abuse material from appearing on the platform. X has reportedly failed to pay that fine, so now it's at risk of daily fines up to half a million dollars American. And finally, uh, Elon's Neuralink, has secured an additional $43 million in venture capital to help develop its digital interface to the human brain. Hey, what are you putting in there? According to filings with financial regulators in this country, the company extended its recent funding round to $323 million. Peter Thiel and his uh, company Palantir raised $280 million for the fledgling Neurotech Company. Neuralink claims it has designed a chip to interface with the brain's neurons. The device is the size of a quarter, featuring 1,024 channels extending from 64 threads to be inserted into the brain. It also claims to have developed a technology comparable to a sewing machine for implanting the thin threads. This according to the Register, British Tech Journal. The company is uh, seeking an unspecified number of participants for its precise robotically implanted brain-computer interface, which doesn't spell out prime, but they say it does, study. The company is specifically looking for quadriplegics, quote, interested in exploring new ways of controlling their computer. According to that company. Oh, and one more. The mayor of future Olympic host city Paris says she is quitting X, accusing Elon Musk's platform of spreading disinformation and hatred and of becoming a gigantic global sewer, her words, that is toxic for democracy and constructive debate. Quote, with its thousands of anonymous accounts and its troll farms, life on Twitter is the exact opposite of democratic life. According to Mayor Ann Hidalgo, in a post entitled, Why I am leaving Twitter. She wrote, quote, I refuse to endorse this evil scheme. An AP request for comment emailed to X, got an automated reply. Busy now, please check back later. At least it didn't get back the reply that uh, Musk gave to fleeing advertisers at the Dealbook Summit conference in New York with New York Times business reporter Andrew Ross Sorkin. It was, Go F yourself, speaking to the advertisers. Go, he repeated, F. Yourself. Got that? Unquote. Elon Musk. Sounds more like George Santos every day. Not a plug, just a piece of information. The Nixon TV series that uh, Ken Hughes was talking about is called Nixon's The One, and it is on YouTube. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes the 40th anniversary edition of the Show. Sounded kind of normal, didn't it? We start year 41 next week, same time, same radio station or a time of your choosing on your audio device of choice you are utterly welcome to join us then the email address for this program your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts really still and um, the list of music heard here on plus so much more to read and think about and forget about all at harryshearer.com and I'm on uh, am I? am I really? mayor of Paris isn't why should I be? I don't know I'll figure it out. show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities, the wondrous facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network thanks once again to Ken Hughes and so long from the Crescent City